this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Here with you again uh, this morning. Such a privilege to be part of what you were doing yesterday and just seeing God move. So that was uh, that was really very special. Who was there yesterday? Oh, I have to give you a different sermon. I can't repeat that, can I? Now, so many of you here. Um, but I said yesterday uh, what I wanted to really talk about was uh, uh, the Father's heart. I touched on kind of what it is to have an orphan heart and how actually. It's our fear of doing stuff that, that, that gets in the way of things happening. And uh, I talked a little bit about how often we think fear, a spirit of fear, needs to be cast out, and sometimes it does. But more often than not, the fear we have comes from an orphan heart. And so we can't cast that out um, at all. It has, to be, it has to be pushed out by something else, and it gets pushed out by Father's love. And, um, and that's what we, we need to see. We need to see it displaced. We can't see it cast out. And so what I want to do today is to open that up a little bit and, and talk a little bit about the Father's heart and, uh, and how, even though we know in our heads we're sons and daughters, we don't always behave like that. And uh, let's have a look and see what, what that's going to open up for us. Um, and... Uh, some years ago, I discovered that I was, in fact, an orphan, even though uh, I knew I was a son of God, even though I, I knew I was the son of my mum and dad who loved me very much, and I love them. It's very, you know, we have a great, uh, blessed family uh, background, actually. So it's a strange concept to begin to think about being orphan-hearted. But actually, as I, as I pressed in, I found it to be uh, just something that has just changed the way I do everything. It's the way I think about everything, the way I behave, the way I, I look at how people are responding to things is trying to work out, is that coming from a sense of sonship or is it coming from a sense of orphan-heartedness? So I want us to look at that. Um, and I, I, when we think about are we a child of God, often we think, how do we know we're a child of God? We often think it's because we're loved. God loves us, therefore I'm a child. And that's true. Absolutely. But also we know that we're a child of God because he disciplines us. Yeah, I thought, I thought you'd be thinking that. See, we like the idea of being loved by God and therefore a son. What we don't like is the idea of being loved by God and therefore disciplined by him. This is going to be a cracking sermon. You're, you're really excited now, aren't you? I can sense it in the room. Look, Hebrews 12, verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. That's what Hebrews 12 verse 8 says. It says, if you are without discipline, you are an orphan. And so actually, if we go through life trying to avoid discipline, we're actually avoiding the love of the Father. And it's, a, it's an interesting thought because without the discipline of a father, we're actually unable to operate with self-control because self-control is rooted in discipline. So your ability to operate in self-control is rooted in the discipline that you receive from the father. 
And because we're not rooted in that, we become slaves. And slaves, as I said yesterday, are governed by fear. They're controlled by fear. And, and actually, the spirit of fear is the spirit of slavery. And so it manifests itself in powerlessness. Okay, We believe that we can't do anything to change our circumstances. Anyone's ever felt in that situation? You just feel, I can't, I'm powerless to do anything. And where it's where we accept our circumstances and we have no understanding or belief that they can change. That's orphan thinking. We feel powerless, or when we feel powerless, because we have no one to run to in our time of need, we have no protection in our time of trouble, what we tend to do is we seek refuge in the devil's counterfeit, illegitimate alternatives. We run to the wrong places. We, we can seek love in the wrong places. For many, they seek love uh, in sex. They look for that closeness that they lack in physical relationships. Some re- escape into fantasy or online gaming or drugs. Some even look to religion or, or meditation to find the peace that they're lacking. And all these things actually deepen our slavery to sin and take us further away from the unconditional love of a good, good father. Romans 8, 15 to 17 says this, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and if heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. It's an amazing truth. Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but sharing the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. And so our temptation, even though we are in Christ, you know that you are in Christ when you become a Christian, you are in Christ and he is in us, we can still fall back into what I call orphan thinking. We tend to still behave like orphans, even though we've been adopted as sons. And uh, we can have basically an identity crisis, really, and we don't really know who we are. Um, and we, we know who we are in theory, but we behave like someone else in practice. And an orphan doesn't feel at home anywhere. An orphan feels and behaves like everywhere is temporary, and so, and so they won't put down roots or build deep relationships. An orphan is someone who is unable to open up their heart to receive love, which results in you not being able to express unconditional love, even sometimes to your own family, because you can't receive it. And this is the opposite of who we're born to be. We need to know who we are. We need to know our identity in him as sons and daughters. We need to know that we're adopted and what that really means. Not what we understand it to mean, but what does that really mean in my life? And so I want us to look at um, a story that you'll be very familiar with in Luke 15. 
Uh, Luke 15, 11 to 32, if you're going to follow me in your Bible. And it says this, and this is a, a parable that Jesus told. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So when he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven uh, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to, uh, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat, each. Let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son, and is alive again, or was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what, were the, what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat to, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is now found. A very familiar story. I suspect, for all of us. And I don't know what heading you have in your Bible, um, if you were following me with that. Maybe it said it was the, the, the parable of the lost son. Um, sometimes it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But actually, I think that's a very misleading heading because this story has very little to do with the sons and a great deal to do with the father. This story is actually more about the father, in my view, than it is about the sons. So I think it should be called the heart of the father rather than anything to do with the sons. This message is all about the dad. It's all about how our loving heavenly father loves unconditionally. And yet even though we're his sons and his daughters, we still behave like orphans. We behave like we have no father. Both the sons in this story behave like that in different ways. And as we look at this parable, we see this younger son asking the father for his inheritance. And it's really important when we read the Bible that we don't read it with our Western mindset. We have to consider 
what context Jesus was speaking into. And he was speaking into a very kind of Eastern context. And so actually we have to understand that, uh, that culture. And actually a son coming and asking for his inheritance would have been the same as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It comes with that kind of weight. And that would have produced shame and dishonor, which are huge things in that culture. And so the, the, the son could have done it in private. We don't actually know. But even so, it would have brought massive shame and dishonor to his father. Now, I have two sons. One's 22 and one's 24. And they're both getting married this year. They thought it would be a good idea to get married within seven weeks of each other. Um, thanks for that. Um, now, in the southeast where we live, it's very expensive. Very expensive to live there. And, and if my boys had just come and said, hey, Dad, look, you know, we're getting married. We need to buy somewhere to live. Could you just die just so we can have our inheritance and we can get on with our lives? I would probably felt a little bit disappointed um, at best, you know, because what is that communicating? What it's communicating is, is that what they value most about me being their father is what I can give them. What they're saying they value most is not our relationships, not our friendship. It's what can that relationship do for them. They're in it for what they can get out of it. They're not in it because they want to be in it. And that's what this is communicating in this story. This son has come to his father and says, look, I'm not interested in you. I'm not interested in our relationship. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm in it for the cash and I want the cash now. Now, you and I would probably have responded very differently to that, the way the father responds, but he gives his son what he's asked for. Now, we may think that's bad parenting. We may, we may kind of have a view on that, but in the story, the, the, the father gives the son what he's asked for, and sometimes I think we have to ask the question, is just because God's given us what we've asked for, does that mean it was God's will for us to have it? Now, that's just probably burst your sovereignty of God bubble, but that's fine. Graham will explain that another time. <laughs> we have to be really careful. God says things sometimes, and he says he gives us over to them. If we keep going on about it, he'll give us over to them. You know, he does this with Balaam. Do you remember he says to Balaam, Balaam says, can I go and prophesy? He says, no, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And then suddenly God says, go. Has God changed his mind? No, Balaam was insisting. He kept asking. He said, okay, go then. Not going to end well, but go. And so we see this father probably in the same frame of mind. This isn't going to end well, but go. That's what you want, go. And so he goes. And um, what you've got to realize is, is that while shame would have come, in the request, actually, look how the father responds to that shame. He responds to that shame with honor and actually gives his son what he's asking for. He doesn't respond to dishonor with dishonor. And he could have just shut his son down because he probably asked him in private, I would suspect. So he probably could have just shut his son down and said no. But what he does is he gives him what he's asked for, which then turns the request public. And in an environment where shame is huge, that is massive. So, so the, the father is, is bearing the shame in order to 
release the son into what he's asked for. As I say, his response to the dishonor was to give honor, which is just an incredible heart of a father right there. So, so this son who had heaped all this shame on his father, he's taken his inheritance early. He, he, he not only shames his father in doing that, he continues to shame his father by squandering his inheritance that his father has so graciously released to him. So it's not like he's taken it and gone being wise with it. He's, he's blowing it. He's squandering it, which brings more shame. He's heaping more shame on, on the father. And we've got to understand the full impact of that in that culture. The son was really going to town on releasing shame to his father. And he was doing it publicly. And then, as is often the case, hardship comes. That wonderful opportunity to say, I told you so. Hardship comes. And the, the things that the son was looking for in taking the money and going away didn't come to fruition. I'm sure he had high hopes of the future. I'm sure he had high hopes of leaving town and, and going off to the big city or to wherever it was with this, this lump of cash and, and life would be different. He had high hopes, I'm sure. But because he was orphan-hearted, he was looking for the things that he wanted in, in the wrong places. And as we read the story, we see that the son eventually comes to his senses. He comes back to his father's house with what I am sure was a very well-rehearsed speech. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And in your head, you are, you're rehearsing the speech. Not too many teenagers in here right now, but I can remember coming home past curfew often with a very well-rehearsed speech. You know, you know the feeling, you remember that. I'm sure you've never done that before you're all very well behaved I'm sure but but I was less so and uh, and so you come and you've got this you're kind of like, this is what I'm going to say this is be all right this will make it all okay and this is what the son was doing he was thinking right this if I say it like this if I do it like this this might be this might be okay and so he comes with this really well rehearsed speech and he's expecting to be treated as a servant he expected dishonor because that's what he'd shown so he was expecting dishonor. And he, he, he was expecting to come back as a servant, the Bible teaches us, because that was what he felt he was worth. That's all he felt he was worth. Having done what he'd done, his, his worth was based on his performance. His performance was poor, and so he expected to be treated like that. He put his worth and his value in how well or not he'd done. And because he, he brought so much shame... He expected to be treated as his sins deserved. But the father responds very, very differently. And first of all, we see the father running to meet him. And I find this amazing because, again, in that culture, older men would not run. They're very kind of regal almost in their, in their behavior. It was, it was something that was not done. And yet the, the father runs and, and uh, he would have hitched up his, his robe which would have exposed bare flesh, which is not something, again, that culture would have permitted particularly. So, so the, the, the father is, is, is showing such love to his son. He's, he's taking on more shame in order to come and meet his son. 
And the father risked that dishonor in order to honor his returning son. And in a culture where what other people think of you is, is the highest, highest order of the day, that was such an amazing picture of the father abandoning, abandoning his own honor, rejecting the shame in order to meet and love on his son. So the father abandons his honor in order to give honor. It's an incredible picture. And what's, what makes it even more incredible is, is that when he was a long way off, the Bible says, the father saw. Now what that tells me is every day, the father was looking. He was looking, scanning the horizon for his returning son. And then he sees him. That one day, suddenly, he sees him. And he runs. Now, the, the problem is, you've read this story a hundred times. You know the outcome. So if you can, let's try and imagine what's going on without knowing the end of the story. So your son has wished you were dead. He's taken a shed load of money. He's disappeared off and spent it on sex, drugs and rock and roll. And now he's coming back. You see him coming, but you don't know why. You don't know why he's coming. He could be coming for more money. You thought about that? You don't know why he's coming back. We know, because we've read the story, that he's ready to repent. But the father doesn't know that. He could be coming for more cash. Yet the father runs. He still runs, not yet knowing why the son is returning. It's an incredible picture. He doesn't know. But he's, he's coming, and he runs and the father lavishes unconditional love on his son before he knows. That's what unconditional love is. It's not based on anything other than who you are and who your father is. You see, we'd want to think, well, let's just see what he's got to say for himself. Then we'll decide. But the father doesn't know he's coming to repent. He could be asking for more money. Yet he lavishes unconditional love on him before the son speaks. That's what unconditional love of a father looks like. It's amazing. And it's a wonderful picture for us of God's unconditional love for us. That love was so great that he sent his own son to pay the price we couldn't pay, to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we couldn't die. And he did that not knowing whether we'd come to a place of repentance or not. Now we can get into the whole God knowing everything and nothing and all that. and what it. He did it not knowing whether you'd repent or not. And even if he did know, he still did it. His love is unconditional. For the greatest atheist, his love was so great that he sent his son. It's unconditional. 
His love is unconditional. And this story is so good because we see this orphan son, it says, come to his senses. He woke up. He realises that what he was looking for in all the places he'd been, what he was looking for was at home all the time. That's what he, he realises. And his father was looking for him and every day he was looking to see if this son who was lost would be found. And when he sees him, he runs, he accepts him just as he is. Now, as he comes, the son comes, he is stinking of pig poo. I'm just putting it out there. Pig poo. Now, he'd been with pigs, which has made him ceremonially unclean for a Jew. The father would have been ceremonially unclean the minute he touched him. Yet we read in this story that the father comes and he wraps his arms around his son. Again, taking on the dishonor, the shame, in order to give honor to his son. And this son, muddy and dirty, unwashed and unclean. Yet he wraps, he flings his arms around him and embraces him. And again, amazing picture of father's heart. And the first thing that the, the father does after loving and hugging his son is to restore him. It says it places a robe around him. He restores his son's honor and dignity even though he risked shaming and dishonouring himself in doing so. And that robe covered the stinking rags that the son was covered in. That robe covered all evidence of the son's sin. And no longer was the son's shame exposed to everyone. He was covered, hidden in the father's robe. Does that remind you of anything? How we're now clothed in his righteousness. Our righteousness was as filthy rags. Yet he wraps his righteousness, robes of righteousness around us. And Jesus, in this parable, this robe that the Father gave, not only covered the Son's iniquities, so they were hidden, but it demonstrated to everyone that the Son's position as a Son of the Father was restored. It was a restoration thing. And so first he was unright his unrighteousness was hidden and covered, and then he was made righteous. He was made righteous. His position as a son was not downgraded because of his failure. It's important. He was still the father's son, and the father honoured him because of that, not because of his performance. And what a wonderful picture for, for us that is. His righteousness not only covers our unrighteousness, but we are made righteous. We are restored to a place of sonship. What amazing father. And if that restoration wasn't enough, we then see the father put a ring on the son's finger. Now again, you need to understand the culture. You've all seen those movies. You know, they're really old movies where the king, they get the melted wax and he puts his ring on it, doesn't he? And, and, and he seals a letter or, or something. And it shows two things. It shows it's authentic. And it shows it comes with authority. And that's what this signifies in this story is, is that the, the, the father giving a ring to his son was restoring not only his authenticity as a son, but his authority as a son. 
Now, this ring would have meant he would have had the ability to move money around, to make deals, to operate on the behalf of the father because he had his father's authority. Now, if you'd had a son, let's just think about this for a minute, who's just wished you were dead, run off with all your money, squandered it, as he comes back, this would be like you giving him the gold ATM card and the PIN number. Because actually we judge on performance. But look, this father doesn't. It's you're a son. You're restored now to authority. You have all authority as a son. You are authentically a son. And this is what happens when the father gives this ring. It doesn't just come with that. It comes with a sense of dignity now. He's covered in a robe of righteousness. He's restored with this authority. There's a sense of dignity restored to the son. And it shows that his authority, as I said, is not dependent on his behavior, but on his position as a son. And when the son came and, and did honor the father, he says, I've sinned against God and against you. That was when the father then restored his authority. So there is that sense of repentance, but once repented, restored. And that's what father does for us. Is he clothes us in righteousness, he covers our sin. And then as we repent, he restores our authority, he restores our dignity. And that's what he does for us when we repent, and that's what we need to do for others when they repent to us. And so our position as a son is not dependent on our behavior. Our sonship rests solely on who our father is. I'm my father's son, not because I've done anything, but because he's my dad. That's it. End of story. And next in his story, we see the, the father put sandals on the son's feet. The son comes expecting to walk in as a servant, but actually he puts shoes on his feet. He walks in as a son. What an incredible father. And this then brings us to the last part of the story where the father continues to honour his son by throwing a party. Not satisfied with knowing that his son has been restored. He wants everyone to know. And so now the shame of the whole thing is on public display. And now everybody's thinking, what's going on? Now you're celebrating your son's return. He showed you nothing but dishonour, yet you honour him. His, his father wanted everyone to know that he was restored. And then we know the story, the older brother, you know, comes along, observes the party, and he's like, what is going on here? What is happening? And his immediate reaction to the honour that was being shown to his brother is to receive it negatively, is to receive it almost as dishonour to himself. And folks, we can think about honour as being this like a finite amount of it. And if we think there's only a finite amount of it, if it's given to one, it's therefore taking it from someone else. And often we think like that. So, you know, if I give you an example, I don't know, if I was to say, hey, who's, you know, who's a musician here? Let's honour the musicians. Uh, it's very easy to think, well, we're not honouring the guys on the sound desk. What's, you know, why, why aren't we doing that? And, 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 yeah, that's a good question to ask, and we can honour them another time. But by giving honour to the band, I'm not removing honour from the guys on the sound desk. Yeah? There's enough, it's an infinite amount of honour that we can give. So it's not by giving it to one, I remove it from someone else. 
So when we honour someone, don't immediately think, well, why aren't we honouring them? We're not removing honour from anyone. We're just giving it. There's plenty to go round. Plenty to go round. And so that's what the, the brother thought. He think, well, how can you, you, you know, you're honouring him, but therefore you must be removing honour from me, and I've done nothing but work hard. And it says that he couldn't enter into the joy of his father. That's massive. So instead of being able to celebrate with his brother who was lost and found, instead of being able to enter into the joy of his father, the older son rejects not just his returned brother, but actually he rejects the love of the father in doing so. He's actually removing himself from the very thing that he wants. And what you notice about the younger son is he never compares himself to his older brother. When he comes to repent, he says, I have sinned against God and against you. He never compares himself to anything. He already knows he's lacking. But the older brother couldn't enter into the joy of his father because of comparison. He said, he's been awful, I've been good, therefore you're honouring him and because of comparison, he's saying, well, he's done, done, that doesn't make any sense to me. He couldn't enter into the joy of his father because of comparison. Comparison's a killer. It's a real killer. And actually what it shows is an orphan heart that's based on performance. Because the minute you compare yourself to someone else, you're entering into the performance game. It's what comparison is. You're comparing your performance to someone else's performance and probably determining that your performance is more worthy of a reward than theirs. That's what comparison is. But it actually shows an orphan heart. Because we're sons and we're daughters, not because of how we perform, but because of who our father is. So the, the older son couldn't enter into the joy of his father, couldn't get the breakthrough either. And that is a response of, of an orphan, where we think, well, we deserve more. And he, like the older brother, he compared that performance. He felt he was more deserving of a reward than his brother. How many of us have been there? But, but I'm, I'm up early praying every day. I give. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And then that person just walks in and it all happens for them. What we're really saying is, God, I think I deserve it more than they do. But that's not how God works. And I think it's, it, it comes down to, as well, thinking about the resources of the Father. Because if that's limited... And if he's giving it to someone else, there's not going to be very much left for me. Maybe we think that as well. I think the thing is, is that what we see in this, this brother is, is because of his own orphan heart, he was unable to celebrate the breakthrough of someone else. And that's what real honour is. Honour is being able to celebrate someone else's breakthrough as if it was your own. And that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> Particularly if it's the breakthrough 
you've been looking for. Particularly if it's the breakthrough that you feel you deserve more. Or more to the point, you think they deserve less. Obviously, we wouldn't say, I deserve it more. We'd just say they deserve it less, which amounts to the same thing. And so there's that, there's that sense of being able to celebrate. The brother couldn't celebrate the joy of his brother's return because of comparison, basically. And it shows orphan-heartedness. How, how are you when someone gets a breakthrough that you want? And haven't got. What does that do in your heart? Are you able to rejoice with them truly? Do you rejoice like a good Christian through clenched teeth? I don't want everybody to know I'm an orphan, even if I am. And we see this, this brother, he's so concerned about himself that he's not able to celebrate his brother's breakthrough. He's unable to see past the impact to him. And that's another thing we do. Whenever we see something happening, someone else says, well, how does that impact me? What, what does that mean for me? Because an orphan is about what can I get done for me? How do I protect what happens to me? And that's hard because we're in a body called the church. We're grafted in. It's more than just me. It's not about you anymore. It's about us. And so sometimes what's best for the body isn't best for you. Get over it. It's got to be what's best for everyone. Because it's together. You know, Jesus is not coming back for you. He's coming back for us. The bride of Christ. The church. See, our language suffers a little bit because we've only got one word for you. Whereas the Greek language has multiple words for you. And the best explanation of many of those words is, sadly, a Southern American saying. Y'all. So when the Bible often says you, it's not saying you. We read it because we're very individualistic as Westerners. Because it's all about me. So when we see the word you, we think it means me. But actually, more often than not, that word means y'all. You know, Christ is coming back for y'all. <laughs> so you need to think about that as you're reading the Bible. It's not we become very individualistic, but actually it's about us. Us all together. And so there's this, this, this whole story going through and, and genuine sons and daughters aren't reacting the way that we see this, this brother's... Uh, acting and an orphan believes they have nothing even when they have everything because this brother says to the father you never gave me anything did you say that true what did he say right at the beginning after the youngest son asked for his inheritance it says the father divided the inheritance between the two sons. So even though he'd been given his inheritance, even though he had his inheritance, had access to his inheritance, 
because he was so orphan-hearted, he believed he had nothing. You never gave me anything. But the inheritance was divided equally between the two sons. Interesting, isn't it? And so what I want us to do now in these closing three hours is to... Is to... (laughs) Honestly, I'll try and be good. Um, Is to look at very quickly at what I call the seven P's of counterfeit affections. And when I say I call them, I've stolen them from someone else. Um, a guy called Jack Frost. If you want to read more about the orphan heart, then Jack Frost is a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. Um, and uh, he has two books I'd recommend. One's called uh, Spiritual Slavery to Spiritual Sonship. And the other one's called Ex- Experiencing the Father's Embrace. Um, and he talks about the seven P's of counterfeit affections, um, or I call them uh, uh, something else sometimes, which just escaped my memory. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? But the point is they're counterfeit affections to what God is really trying to do. And so I just want to quickly run through them and then I'll, I'll end. But just to see where you sit on them. The first one is passion. P for passion. Passions of the flesh. And by that, we can turn to addictions of food or alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, escapism. And that's what the younger son does. He looks to, to get away. He looks like, if I can escape to these things, if I can escape here, everything will be all right. And so he, he's given in to the, to the passions of the flesh. And we, we look to those things, to sex, to drugs, to food, to all sorts of different things come in under that bracket, but, but that can be something that, that is a counterfeit affection. We go to those things rather than going to God. You know, I, I can feel like that sometimes. So, if I'm honest, sometimes if I'm really down, my first port of call is the fridge, not the father. That's, that's just being honest with you. So passions of the flesh can reveal an orphan heart. The next thing is possessions. They just... Often somehow feel like if, if I've got possessions, if I've got stuff, if I've got enough money in the bank, if I've got everything settled, if it all goes wrong, I can fall back on this. It's often thinking. You believe your provision is going to come from what you do and not from the Father's hand. You never gave me anything. That kind of attitude. But it doesn't, we don't say it like that because we're too clever. You know, but it comes with, well, I just, I just need to put this by. I know there's a gift day, but I can't really put this in because I need, to, I need to make sure I'm okay. Rather than trusting in God that you'll be okay. The next P is position. Position's really important to orphans because that's where they get affirmation. I talked about this yesterday. This is where you can get affirmation. This is where you can get honour. You see orphan-heartedness in, in the corporate world all the time. Now the, the, the orphans are the ones that come in first and leave last, hoping to get some affirmation and recognition so they can climb the corporate ladder, so they can get position. And sadly, we see it in the church too. Because with position comes, comes honour, and it's that that they crave. And rather than seeking it from God, they, they look to others for it. So that's another... Another indication. Another one I've always already touched on is performance. To behave in a particular way in order to receive recognition or affirmation. 
And that's what the older brother demonstrates in this orphan heart. He says, I've never disobeyed one of your commands. As if that was, he was saying, look, see, I've done everything you've asked. I have performed brilliantly, yet you give me nothing. And it shows an orphan heart at two levels. One is he feels like performance makes a difference. And secondly, he believes he's poor when he's been given everything. And so performance is another one. And maybe another time I can talk on these a bit more. People is another one. So orphans look to others to meet their needs. There's a belief that the person or this person or this spouse is the answer to all your needs instead of Father God. And there's a desperation sometimes for, for marriage, for a girlfriend, for a boyfriend, for a, a fiancé, and eventually a spouse, that you believe that they will provide you what you're looking for, what you're lacking in love. But let me tell you, <laughs> be careful. Not only if you're orphan-hearted and desperate for those things, but if you find someone who's also orphan-hearted because they're going to be looking to you to provide what they're lacking and you're looking to them to provide what you're lacking rather than going to the Father. And, and that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And so it's, it's, it's that, that sense of, of people will do it. Actually in church we don't see it quite like that. What we, what we see in church often is what I call rescuers. Okay, so we have rescuers who love to go and rescue people in trouble. And actually their value comes from being needed and wanted and able to help rather than them going to the Father. So they're looking, they're looking for a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of need. Now, don't get me wrong, people that help other people aren't all like this, but you, you, you can see that tendency coming. They want to rescue someone, a victim. They need to find victims. And the victims need rescuers. And so the victims are orphans by definition, and so they're looking for someone to come and rescue them rather than God. And so what you can have in church sometimes is you can actually have a very unhealthy relationship of dependency because the rescuer needs victims. And so the last thing they really want is for their victims to go to God and get sorted out on their own because they don't need them anymore. That's how a heart comes out. Now, I'm sure they'd never say that out loud, but I've seen it. And the victim is desperate for the rescuer. And so when the rescuer comes along and says, well, I need to show you how to go to God so you can get this sorted out for yourself, they'll get proper cheesed off because they need... And so you get this codependency. Where the rescuer needs the victim, the victim needs the rescuer, no one's looking to God. And so people can be part of our orphan-heartedness. The younger son looked to people. He looked to go off with his friends and wild living, the Bible says. He was looking to people rather than to look into his father. Finally, place. Place is the next P of the orphan heart. Have you ever thought this? If we just moved away, everything would be okay. 
if we just went somewhere else, if we found a different church, if we found a different job, if we found a different town, different friend, if we, if we, were, just, if we were just over there, everything would be okay. And so the orphan believes that the place they are is, is, is necessary to be right. Everything's got to be okay. There's this sense of escape. That's what the younger son did. I need to get away. Give me what's coming. Let me go. Let me, it'll, be, it'll be great over there. I said yesterday, you know, it always looks like the grass is greener on the other side, but it still needs mowing. It still needs looking after. It's not greener on the other side. And so the orphan looks to move place to try and find or they guess, they assume that it's going to be better. It wasn't in the story we see the younger son. He says he comes to his senses and he realized that what he needed, everything that was there for him was at home. The very place he'd left thinking if I leave here, if I could just get out of here, if I could just get out of this crummy job, if I could get out of this crummy church, if I could get out of this crummy situation, this crummy marriage, this crummy... We've all thought thoughts like that, not necessarily all of them. But we think that. It's orphan-heartedness. It's showing that we need to get things sorted with him. And we believe that if we could just go somewhere, just go somewhere else, it would be different. Now the problem with that is I find is wherever I go, there I am. (laughs) And if I'm the one with the problem, and I am, then that problem's just going to pitch up wherever it is I go. And that's what we see like with the children of Israel wandering around the desert. It wasn't very big. Have you ever looked at a map? It's tiny. But keep going around until you learn the lessons. And eventually you learn the lessons and then you break out of the circle. Across the Jordan into the promised land. And then sometimes you find another. <laughs> but that's how it is. And so place is a really important thing. And actually, actually, the last one, sorry, is power. I know I'm running a bit late, but I'll come into land. Power. And that's connected with position and performance, of course. Power seekers desire to control their life and their destiny. Every move is calculated, pre-planned. They'll cultivate relationships that will serve the plan. Um, Don't really want to be open and real and genuine um, because they look to control and manipulate emotions and people and circumstances to ensure they're never disappointed or hurt again. So I don't just mean power in terms of I want to be prime minister or the queen or something, but it's that sense of the power that I have because I'm in control. And that's really what an orphan goes for, is that I want to be in control. And that normally comes from a place of hurt, where you've been hurt before and you're thinking, I am never going to let that happen to me again. I never want to feel like that again. And so the walls go up. And it's just orphan-heartedness. It creates an independence in us from Father. Because we're looking to control everything when actually our protection, our, our safety is being in him. It's being in the shadow of his wing. That's where our safety is. And we all exhibit hearts of orphans in different ways, in different times. But the reality is how you will treat yourself and how you'll understand yourself as a son or a daughter or an orphan will depict how you deal with other people. 
Because you're not going to be able to love people unconditionally unless you know you're loved unconditionally. You will always respond to others in the way that you are dealing with yourself and with Father. Um, And uh, we look to kind of find people's approval or approval from all these different ways where actually we need need to go to Father. And so it's a very kind of whistle-stop tour of the Father's heart, but actually those seven Ps are really important, and I'm certain... I'm certain that as I've gone through those, you will have identified with some one or of those things. And so what I want us to do, can I have some keys? He's not out of the toilet this time. Anyone there? Going once. Some keyboard player? Is there someone there? So yesterday I asked for the keyboard player and he'd already rushed out to the toilet. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, a lady this time, there you go. She's got better bladder control. <laughs> but I just, I just want us just to take just a couple of minutes now. If you need to go and get children, by all means do. But if you feel like God's spoken to you, then ask someone else to go get them. And let's just wait for a moment just on him. Father, I just ask, Lord, in these closing minutes would you continue to speak to our hearts Lord God Father forgive us when we have taken the position of an orphan where we have chosen to step back from you we have chosen to look to other things instead of you and Father we we want to know that unconditional love of a father Lord so we can unconditionally love others Holy Spirit, would you just move right now? If you know God's spoken to you, you felt kind of that prick of the Holy Spirit around those things, why don't you just stand where you are? Passion, possessions, position, performance, people, places, power, control, those kind of things. If that's you, just stand where you are. I'm already stood. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, just ask, just minister everyone who stood. Thank you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for turning to counterfeit saviors. where we go elsewhere rather than to you. And I pray, Lord God, we'd be like that younger son, standing in that pig poo, coming to our senses and thinking, everything I need is in my Father's house. And Father, we just figuratively now just want to run to you as you run to us, as you've been searching on the horizon for our return, Lord, we, we say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our orphan-heartedness. 
We want to focus again on you. We receive your love right now. We receive those robes of righteousness that cover our foolishness and restore us as sons and daughters. We receive that ring of authenticity and authority. We stand in the good of it now. And Father, we receive that as we repent. Lord, we've come to our senses. Help us. Help us when we drift. Help us when we look to protect ourselves from hurt. Help us when we want to run to the fridge. Help us with all those things we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.